Good morning, everybody. So this practice period, our theme for the practice period is embodied refuge. And um, I've really been taking that up seriously to figure out how to find a way to communicate or to be able to hear and understand how the body communicates, how the body feels and responds and makes meaning of our lives and the Dharma. So Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, before we can speak about awareness, we have to ask awareness of what? So today, as a, as a way of trying to really support your sitting, your one-day sitting today, I'm, I'm, I was working on thinking about how to orient all of us towards a way of listening that, is, um, that foregrounds and centers uh, not our dis- not our, our, our discriminating um, rational mind, you know, from some other place. And it's not easy to do because um, it doesn't translate so easily into words, this kind of language. So um, it's kind of a koan for me. And um, so as I was thinking about what I wanted to share with you, I didn't want to start from the top up. (laughs) There's two ways of processing uh, information experience. One is what we typically do is top down, which is to start with the mind, the rational mind, the discriminating mind, the intellectual mind, and then like, you know, have it look at and make sense of what's what's down here. <laughs> and um, I've been really having fun with um, um, waiting and listening for um, what the body wants to say about what to speak about. And um, last time I, I started in that way with my last talk about um, darkness and rage and fire <laughs> and shadow and um, and I'm kind of continuing in that theme a little bit with a, with a slight variation in uh, really with a wish to um, offer something for you to play with for the next few hours. So this is an example. This morning, um, we were sitting zazen. We start early in the morning when it's dark. The monks come up down the hill or through the woods <laughs> to grandmother's house. <laughs> and um, we start sitting together. And as we were sitting together, um, typically we put Milo and Molly up in our room so they um, stay in bed and hopefully stay quiet. And as we were starting to sit, um, I heard Milo uh, begin to bark. And he was doing one of those barks that were um, a a kind of a very sweet bark because he needed to bark, 
but he was also respectful and knowing that we were all sitting. I really believe he knows this is the quiet time. So he had that muted bark. He was trying really hard to be not bark for us. But he also had a deep instinctual need to bark, which was also for us. So the first thought I had was one that came from up here, which was, um, oh shit, the dog is barking. Do I have to get up? <laughs> Who's going to get up? Was he going to shut up? Um, this is not good. And then I kind of let that quiet down. And I felt into the room. And this image came up. So here we are in the dark with a little candle on the altar, and we're all sitting mostly in the dark around a circle. You know, we're in a circle in the zendo, sort of circle. And there is Milo upstairs barking. And in that moment, I had this um, image that arose of um, humans gathered around the fire in the middle of the night, and the dog a dog on the, on the periphery um, protecting us while we, um, so we can all sit or sleep or eat, warning us. So that in that moment, the whole felt sense of, of what was happening here shifted to, uh, to um, kind of like opened up time. And I felt the whole room differently. I felt what was being offered me differently. I felt cared for and I felt connected. And then I had another, that faded away, and then the next image that came up was all of you um, in this circle, um, all of us and all monks gathered together in the dark season and the rainy season to sit together, you know, when, when there is a long dark nights and that this is a time where we intensify our practice and we've been and, and monks have been doing this for thousands of years and there there it was now we were all these monks gathered together and um, and in that image was the light of the altar and also lots of darkness you know we were we were surrounded by darkness and there was um, some way that us gathering together was part of um, a protection, um, an encouragement, a way of, of holding on to each other in the midst of so much unknown. So, um, so when we sit in Zazen, what we're doing is... Um, gathering together and allowing ourselves to feel into what isn't in our everyday consciousness. So as we sit, these things, these things happen to us. We begin to feel into something that comes through our senses. This is bottom-up processing. It's like a sensory field, sound, dog, light, circle, something arises. Now, I didn't want to grab onto that and say that's it, you know, but it was it was a, it was information and then it passed. And it had some wisdom in there. It had some information about the collective, about a history. 
So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the different ways that we can think about darkness uh, as something that is um, a field of, of information and wisdom for us. So I, I wanted to start also by um, naming things that maybe need to be named in order for us to settle down, like naming realities that are out there, dark realities. right? So one way of looking at darkness, a way it traditionally can be thought of is uh, death or um, danger, And as I settle into that, uh, that, that, um, that aspect of reality, you know, to name in this room that we're going to, we're all holding collectively and, and we have to maybe also bring it in to be supported by all of our bodies is the, um, is the, the, the suffering that's happening right now. I know we name it all the time, and we have to keep naming it. You know, eight months, eight months of being separated from the ones we love. 1,355,963 people have died because of this pandemic. We lose in our country one person a minute. So, as I say that, my heart starts vibrating, I feel heavier. Last night we had a a memorial ceremony for all, honoring all those who have been killed as a result of transgender violence. They're in the room. Last week, Lissa and Katrina held an incredibly beautiful ceremony to acknowledge just some of the many black and African-American citizens who have died as a result of state violence. That's in the room. We hold that from this collective darkness. As we move to Thanksgiving, the recognition of the attempted genocide and the ongoing cultural and racial prosecution persecution of indigenous, the indigenous peoples whose lands we're sitting on. This is here. And then finally, not finally, but I, I feel this need to mention every single time I give a talk, the um, This mass extinction of species. So they, they, I just read that there's, um, um, I think the baseline is hundreds if not thousands of times quicker in terms of the extinction of species than, than it should be. So again, they predict about a million species dying on our planet over the next couple of decades. So that's a form of darkness. 
and we have this sorrow. And then there is um, other kinds of darkness that I wanted to speak of. One of them, as I mentioned last time, is this um, darkness, a shadow, and unconscious karmic processes. So um, I read that um, 90, what's this, 95% of what we experience, our brain activity, and what we are actually experiencing in the world is beyond our conscious awareness. So 95% of our experience is in the dark. That includes, you know, habits and pattern, habit patterns and autotomic, you know, bodily functions, values, biases, all those kinds of things in the dark. And then there's things that we purposely try to push into the dark, right? Things that we've exiled or are too painful or traumatic for us to allow into our consciousness. And, um, and I, I was reading that 96% of the universe is made up of dark energy. So we're like living in this incredibly dark world. And on top of it, I was having fun with Greg. We uh, talked about um, darkness is emptiness. That 99% of everything in the universe is made up of empty space. 99%. There, uh, I, I just read, if we, if we lost all the dead space inside of atoms, each of us, we each would be able to fit into a particle of dust. <laughs> and that the entire human species would fit into a volume of a sugar cube. I think that's right, Tom, you may be able to correct me, but that's pretty wild. So what, what is this mass? The mass is energy. So really what we're, what we're mostly made up of is energy. And there's a reason I'm mentioning that. I'll get back to it in a minute. And then finally, which I find to be the most um, compelling and beautiful framing of darkness is darkness as mystery. So um, I came across this uh, this week as I was as I was just playing around and following following one thing to another. I came across Joan Sutherland, uh, some teachings of hers, and I don't I, I I had this experience which is just so amazing when it happens. So much of what I feel and what I know is implicit, and I don't have words for it. And then I listened to a talk of hers. And it was as if she was eloquently, beautifully naming everything that I had been feeling and didn't have words for. So it opened up this whole world to me. It's just wonderful when people can translate that. And um, this is a little bit about what I want to talk about today. So she talks about, as a balance to enlightenment, this idea of endarkenment. So that this darkness, this mystery of who we are and how we are together and how we are being influenced all the time is to be honored and to be listened to and is necessary for our wholeness. That enlightenment can, 
can tend to have a sense of only the light, you know, or the discernment. And that we can, we always are operating with a knowingness, you know, and we speak about this all the time. But to really feel into that and honor that as important. Because it can allow us to be more humble. We have no idea <laughs> how things are coming to be or operating. We only have a tiny little glimpse. And that if we are, um, and our societies are too focused on light, too focused on rationality, we are, we are, we are cutting off and polarizing and splitting something uh, that is part of our healing. So as I, I'm saying, we're mostly made up of darkness, space, and mystery. <laughs> so how do we meditate on that? <laughs> what does that look like and what does that do to our minds? It kind of puts them in their proper place, you could say. We try so hard to figure everything out. You know, there, when I was looking around at teachings, because I, I was thinking a lot about water this week, too. And I came across a um, quote from Dogen, because I was looking at Mountains and River Suture. And so he says, There are mountains hidden in mountains. There is hiddenness hidden in hiddenness. I have no clue what this means. I, I really don't. Something about it is completely compelling to me. Something about it feels really right. And I could not tell you what that means. And I don't even want to be able to tell you what it means. I want to be drawn to it. It's a, it's a, it's a mystery that he's pointing to you know, in this very poetic way. So when we sit in Sashin, one of the wonderful things about doing this, and I, in whatever way we can, is that we get to quiet down the outside stimulation, all the light, all the input, and we actually can begin to feel into that, into that, into that darkness. And the darkness may come up in the form of a, a kind of unconscious karmic shadow that we have been chasing away by our busyness. You know, we sit down, boom, there it comes. Uh, a moment of rage, anger, heartbreak, a trauma. Or it could come up in the form of um, some sense of deep connection. And it's always coming up together with the whole cosmos. You know, this Thich Nhat Hanh says, the whole cosmos is our body. And we're also the body of the entire cosmos. So how do we, how do we hear the cosmos? It may not be speaking in logical language. And um, Joan says, Joan Sutherland, she's, I love this line. She says, if we sit still enough and open our hearts, the world will come to fetch us. How can we become fetchable, she asks. 
So meditation is this enormously receptive mode where the world comes and fetches us, fetches our hearts, minds, and bodies. So, um, one of the things I was playing with is the way that the body speaks or hears from this mystery is um, if we want to listen more uh, directly, we need to um, foreground our sensory experience rather than our, our, our intellectual experience. So um, I think it speaks to us through the sensory world, right, as I was mentioning before. And it's, it's not, um, I almost think of the sensory world as a, a kind of a transitional space, a space that is like, a, that there is, um, you know, we say, uh, you know, when the hearing is just the hearing or the seeing is just the seeing, or we say, drop away body and mind, which is beautiful, beautiful pointer. But often we can't do that. You know, we can't just hear. We can't just see. We can't just drop away our histories, our, our experience. We don't know how to do that. And so I feel as if um, I want to offer us permission to um, have this kind of mediating function of, um, of, our, of our felt sense of things that might come up in a, a sort of mental formation, what, what um, Thich Nhat Hanh calls mere images. So it's still representational, it still has a cognitive function, it still is, you know, our, it's still our imagination but it, it almost feels as if it offers some kind of window or conversation with something beyond our own karmic consciousness. So when we sit in meditation, we can begin to notice what is moving in us. What is the felt sense of things? You know, when we say the sensations, can we get really granular about that? You know? And um, can we feel the subtleties of the sensation of our of our um, hands sitting on our lap, or the sensation of anger. Now, if we drop the narrative of anger, what's the sensation of anger? What's the sensory experience of anger? Uh, and I love adding this piece about us as mostly energy. Because um, what I've noticed sitting so much as I was in, I, 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 I have the privilege now of like being able to have sometimes an experience where the mind is very quiet. And I can feel myself as an energetic body. Uh, in this article I read, they said, you know, we're never really touching anything. Our hands aren't touching. Our butt is not touching the, the zabaton, I mean the zafu. It's actually just energetic fields bumping up against each other. That gives us that sense of touching. <laughs> so you could play with, as you're sitting in Zazen, to feel this energetic field that we are, this buzzing energetic field, and, and, the, and, and just see if you can sense that and, and um, how it manifests and how it moves and how it shifts.
And this is, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you permission to also not worry so much about um, not engaging the mind, relaxing the mind, keeping the mind open, but allowing the mind to feel or the body to, to speak to the mind through this, these, this images, these images. Right, so you may just sit, and all of a sudden, uh, an image might appear to you. It might also. So part of what we do in Zen is actually use images all the time to help point to something uh, to prajna. So we use uh, archetypes like bodhisattvas. They're living spiritual aspiration. And one bodhisattva I would have in your pocket today, since unfortunately so much of our suffering comes from some sort of separating and exiling and disparaging of parts of ourselves or aspects of our experience, the bodhisattva that never disparages. So there's this bodhisattva in the Lotus Sutra that's spoken about. And no matter what happens to this bodhisattva, um, I don't know why, but they throw stones at him. <laughs> they beat him up. They tell him how bad he is, what an, how no good he is, what an imposter he is, what a bad Zen student he is. <laughs> what a terrible mother he is. No matter what they throw at him, this Bodhisattva says, does not um, respond in kind. He, he might step back and get out of the line of fire, and maybe from a distance he'll yell to these uh, energies, um, I, I do not disparage you because I know you will be a Buddha one day. That's his, that's his mantra. You will be a Buddha one day. So he can hold on to and see in his heart and his body this uh, wholeness, this beauty, even in the midst of the darkness of their responses. So when we're sitting and we're maybe struggling and we can't drop away body and mind, we can bring this bodhisattva to us. We can also... Um, bring uh, questions, images, and um, like inquiry questions. You know, that's what koans are. Like a question that you can drop into the body that's not an intellectual question. So some of the questions, um, you know, you can ask to get out of your body, mind and into your body might be, you know, what's moving in me right now? What is here? This is one from Joan. I love it, Joan, Joan Sutherland. What is the moon making grow? What is the darkness growing? What's growing inside? What's gestating there? What in this moment am I pushing into the margins? Am I exiling? What is the song I'm hearing right now? You might use nature, you know, um, what's on fire right now? 
This happens to me about once an hour when I'm having my menopausal symptoms. Like, whoa, fire! <laughs> What's warming my heart right now? How can I give over to this transforming energy that's arising from the darkness? And, um, and as always, you know, we are not just uh, an individual body, we're a collective body. So Shahako Akamura says, when we sit in this posture of meditation, we are one with all beings, all time, all space. Can we really feel that and, and settle into that? What would that look like or feel like to feel all beings, you know, our ancestors, animals, plants? Thich Nhat Hanh says all generations are in us. And we are also, this Sangha is a manifestation of our collective consciousness. So we can feel into the, the, the transmission of a lineage. You know, as, as we chanted, you know, we will all be Buddhists someday. We are ancestors. How do we appear as ancestors right now? Are we willing to keep our hearts broken and open and connected to the pain and the sorrow and the beauty. We can also use a phrase to remember if we get so caught up in our own idea of suffering. You know, this, um, this phrase, trail of tears, that's both a specific heartbreak as well as a universal one. And the dogs are coming in, and I also feel like we can use loving beings. You know, <laughs> Sometimes I sit in Zazen, and I don't feel so well, and I think about Molly licking my face. <laughs> At that moment, she's helping me to stay and settle and remember that I belong. It, it's, it's, really, it's really fun and wonderful and powerful. When I was in IFOT, we had to, we did an exercise once. Listen, maybe you remember where I, it was something about um, how are the ancestors speaking to you. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't find them, you know, for many reasons. I won't get into now, but I, I sat there and I listened and I listened and I listened, and then. Um, Maybe I've said this before, it's so powerful. The water spirits came to me and they said, you belong to us, you're ours. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> in the water. I feel completely connected to the water spirits. <laughs> So this is a Thich Nhat Hanh speaking about this. He says, when we visualize a mountain during meditation, that visualization belongs to the realm of mere images. But because this image is embraced by mindfulness, 
it begins to release the truth about itself and can help point to the realm of representation from which it has come. In fact, our mindful contact with the mountain may be more clear and precise than that of someone gazing at an actual mountain. The realm of mere mere images can be the door to the truth. So I want to leave you with an extended quote from Joan's talk, Joan Sutherland's talk. I, I feel very grateful for her talk and for Thich Nhat Hanh and for IFOT and for helping kind of um, legitimize you know, my, what feels like a very unorthodox way of practicing Zen. So see if you can listen with your body to this, to this part of her teaching. There is the world of our ordinary daylit lives, and there is another world underneath that. A world that is in the dark and has vast currents, rivers of water flowing through it. That water has been flowing since before the beginning of time. Sometimes in our ordinary daylit lives, we forget that or even turn our backs on it. This way is so much about coming to know those deep currents underground, coming to rely on them as, and as a practice to sink wells down into them. Sometimes I think of this kind of Zen we are doing as the lunar countercurrents. These, we, we sink wells into that underground stream and bring up water that is dark and cool and moist into a world that feels sometimes that it has too much sun. That's a world that is on fire and offer that water as a kind of healing balm. Not only to the world that feels like it is on fire, but to our individual psyches, which can also feel like they are burning. And as we do this, we find easier to live lives of great generosity and courage and to include what has been excluded, to leave nothing out, to value what comes out of the deep currents and into our ordinary lives, to come home to our own heart minds and our own lives and also see it as vast as the universe. All that is us and all that is home. Turning that feeling of home as an offering to every being and everything to create a genuine home for all things and share this small, fragile, and achingly beautiful planet that has been given into our care. So, a day of sitting together in this way around a circle in front of a fire, listening and feeling into the deep currents that come up, as we respect and honor and listen and use that as a way to find our way home to each other. What an incredible, wonderful way to spend a day (laughs) together, a lifetime together. I'm really deeply, deeply grateful for all of you being here all together. We're all together. I know we have a few hard months ahead of us 
many of us. But if we recognize and remember that we're actually really not apart at all, we're energetically, deeply, 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 unknowingly connected. And we're just honing our capacity to know and realize and trust in that. It's a great comfort. It's a great joy. So I I think we're out of time. I think we're done. So we will now, you know, the other thing too is like, um, yeah, really what you were saying, Radha, today is an opportunity for us to, all of us to be held We hold each other, but we're also being held by our forms, by the collective container, by the schedule. So that gives us a chance to really release. We don't have to hold it together, you know? And people are doing various parts um, to help support that container, but it's a chance for all of us to kind of um, rest in that. It's so precious and so rare, and there's so much assault, right? So we really need it. So, yeah, thank you. I wish for all of you to have a very um, imaginative and and deep day. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.